you ever found your place, found yourself in a place where you feel disoriented, all it takes is just a little change in your health or the health of someone you love and immediately what you kind of know and understand and what you count on, what you bank on, and that changes It's an easy sense for us to be disoriented. Sometimes there are challenges that come with parenting where you feel like you figure something out and then the game changes and it's disorienting. There's times where you're caring for someone or a crisis moment. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you feel confused? You feel doubt, you feel despair over a circumstance that doesn't seem likely to change? Or maybe it's even the other way around. It's the fact that it is changing and you kind of like the way it was. This actually causes you not to just feel a little sad, but even finding yourself in a, a place of despair. Find yourself in a place of uncertainty or a place where you feel hurt. And maybe there's a situation that caused the hurt, maybe it's caused by others, maybe it's something you did yourself, maybe, maybe just maybe there really isn't a good explanation, it's just life, and life at times can press so hard, it hurts. Or maybe this is a season where you're waiting, you're waiting. And I found, like my timetable and my idea of great timing seems to differ from the Lord's on occasion and find ourselves not in control of things. I want to tell you, I think all of those situations that I've just described, kind of put them in a word. I think one word we could give this would be a wilderness. A wilderness. Uh, the dictionary describes it like this. There's some key words. A dictionary would say a wilderness is a place or a season that is uncultivated or uninhabited or inhospitable. A wilderness is a place that is neglected or abandoned. Like how one dictionary said it, it's a bewildering situation. Here's the question I want to ask. What does it look like to walk with God in the wilderness? Where we are uncertain. Where we feel neglected where things seem to be changing, where it seems like it's temporary and not permanent. I'm going to invite you to turn to the fourth book of the Bible, which is the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That, that may seem a surprise to answer, like, where do you turn in, to find out how to walk with God in the wilderness? But I think we'll see there's actually a very helpful place to turn. If you know the storyline of the Bible or are familiar with it, just kind of in brief summary, you, you have the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And the book of Exodus tells how God's people, the nation of Israel, was brought out of Egypt. And Egypt is kind of this place of long-term bondage. And God delivered his people miraculously and powerfully. So God's people, Israel, came out of Egypt. And this wasn't a group of people who had finally risen to overcome all the obstacles, and now we're in command of their own destiny. That's not the story of Exodus. The story of Exodus is one in which God did all the heavy lifting. God brought them out of Egypt. 
in a powerful way. When, when you read that, that's Exodus, and that's the second book. By the time you get to the fifth book of the Bible, which is Deuteronomy, the storyline has advanced. And now they're 40 years from where we left them in Exodus, and they're actually dozens of miles away from where we left them in Exodus. They've moved from, the, from Egypt to modern-day Jordan. They've, they're, they're sitting on the banks of the Jordan River, ready to go into the Promised Land. How did they get there? Numbers tells us what happened in those 40 years and what happened over those miles. How did they get there? They had to go through the wilderness. They had to go through a place that was really no man's land. They had to go to a place that really was never meant to be home. It's the wilderness that is unsettling and complicated. So we go back to this question, what does it look like to walk with God in the wilderness, and what I've prayed is that the Lord would use his unfailing, powerful word to speak to us today. Can I acknowledge something? I am guessing that it's been a while since you've heard teaching through the book of Numbers. My guess is that's not like if we had everybody's favorite book of the Bible. My guess is Numbers probably isn't going to win that contest. As a matter of fact, as you read it, it's actually a challenging book because numbers deals in lots of repetition and, quite frankly, numbers. And those numbers, which seem to be ancient, don't seem to have as immediate application as something like John 3.16 or I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so it may be easier if we're confessing to when we're reading through the Bible and we come to numbers, we kind of hit the accelerator to go through fast or we kind of flip through and yeah, 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 uh, more and, and kind of try to move through that or we just skip it all together. But I'm going to ask us to, over the next several weeks, to give some attention to it. So I think God has a word for us as a congregation. And so can we dig in? Can we dig in in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 1? Numbers 1 and verse 1. That's the way the book begins. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Man, as much as I want to dive in, how much is right there? The Lord spoke in the wilderness. So before we hit the accelerator too quickly, this is the God who made everything that has chosen to not leave his people in the dark, but to speak to them, to tell them what he wants, to tell them more about him. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, when the world's turned upside down, when there's little stability, when there's a lot of disorientation, when there's waiting, God speaks. Let's keep reading. He spoke in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation. It's where the book's name comes from. Take a census, gather the number of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You, Moses, and Aaron shall list them company by company. God has spoken, and he's spoken, and the highlight of our attention is drawn immediately in Numbers 1 to the people of God. 
we're going to understand numbers, and if you're going to understand what it means to walk with God in the wilderness, you're going to have to understand how God highlights his people. So he begins with taking a census, writing down a lot of names, forming a genealogy of the 12 tribes. I would have to say, I think I would begin the book a little bit differently. Can we put on a fireworks show to begin numbers? That would, that would seem, if we're going down the runway, that would kind of launch us really quickly. God do something miraculously, but God, in his wisdom, doesn't take cues from me. This is this what you need to know about my people? This is what will advance the storyline, which you and I may consider a boring census, listing of names, but I think there's more to this census, and we don't have time to dig into every aspect of all these chapters. But as we read, there's something about this group of people, the people of God. Did you notice in verse 3? They have a specific mission to accomplish. Okay, so we're not just numbering to number them. They're gathering for war. He says, number those who are able to go to war. A specific mission to accomplish that comes directly from God. I mean, they've been, they're a rescued people. They've been brought out of Egypt. They're a listening people. They've heard the voice of God, but now they, now they have a mission. God is directing them, get ready. It's time to take the promised land. As name after name is gathered, as tribe after tribe is listed in the remainder of Genesis 1, you also get a picture that the people matter to God. So it'd be very easy to just summarize, yeah, there are a lot of people. There are bunches of them. That's not the way it's done, though, is it? Like every tribe, and, and so there were important tribes, and there were less important tribes, and everyone is named just the same. There are important leaders of households, and then there are those that aren't as important. Everyone is named, and it's telling us something. It's telling you something. So people matter to God. We don't find here like those who wrote the fat checks that supported everything, that get their plaques, you know, names on plaques for being a huge donor. Like that, that's not the criteria here. It's just listing name by name. And after every name, we can, we can say, yep, they matter to God and their family does. And that family matters to God. And that family matters to God. And that family matters to God. Telling us something profound that every family's named and every family's counted. These are people. And the gathering of the list is also a test. It's, it's to Moses like, will you do this? Will you obey me? And it says in verse 19, as the Lord commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai, he would obey. And there's something interesting about reading a collection of names like this. As much as it highlights each individual tribe and each individual family, when you come out of Numbers 1, what you get a clear picture of is these people were meant to be a group. So as much as they individually matter to God, God looks at an entire people. So no one's flying solo here. The, numbers, the book of Numbers isn't about a superstar. It's about a people, the people of God, the people that he cares about. And so in Numbers, the whole family of Israel, the whole nation is going to move together. 
It's going to take them 40 years. And I began to just think, what would it be like to spend 40 years in transit with my family? Like all of them. Like all the cousins. All the siblings. All the aunts. All the crazy uncles. They're all along for the ride. In an unsettled environment. And what God wants you to know is that people matter to him. Individually, yes. But as we gather and as all over northern Delaware, there are gathering of body of believers that preach Christ. They all matter. They all matter to him. The people of God. Yet as you read through Numbers 1, there's a particular place that's mentioned and it's called a tabernacle. So we've got the, the people of God, but, but in verse 50, the tabernacle, a dwelling place comes up. And I, I want you to look at Numbers chapter 2 in verse 1. Because this tabernacle or this tent of meeting, both are t- describing the same thing, come up. The Lord speaks to Moses. So if you flip over a chapter, Numbers chapter 2, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard. With the banners of their father's houses, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. So notice in these verses, God's still speaking. We got this collection of people. And now we have more detail. No more fireworks. We've got more detail. And that is a group of people that are going to be gathered around a tent of meeting. Chapter 1 is about a genealogy. Chapter 2 is about geography forming a place around this tent. And this tent becomes pivotal in the book of Numbers. It's clear that it's meant to be the center of life for the Israelites. The tribe get arranged. The tribes get arranged around this tabernacle, which means dwelling place, or this tent of meeting. They do this. They arrange themselves just as Moses has received this command from the Lord. Do we appreciate the detail? I, I want you to see just a rough sketch, a diagram of how the tribes were formed. So you had the tent of meeting in the middle. And so each one of those lines around it represents one of the tribes. And so notice whether it's north, south, east, or west, the, the, the tent is going to be surrounded. And notice what's at the center, and that's very critical a tent of meeting, and we ask, who to meet with? Is that for them to meet each other? It's actually for them to meet with God. What will happen in that tent of meeting is the people will will meet with God. It'll be a symbol of his presence, and it actually will be his presence there. What will keep the tribes together will be this tent of meeting. When this tent moves, the people move, and this arrangement matters. There's much more we could say about the tent. But it is the point, it's the center point. We read a lot more about it in Exodus and even Leviticus. So you you read through Numbers 2, and we won't, won't read it all. But it begins to emerge there's another tribe that's not included in those 12 tribes around the tent. So there's, there's 12 tribes, but there, there's another one. 
There's a, a specific tribe that is highlighted that's kind of pulled out for special consideration, and that's the tribe of Levi. So as we're understanding what God is doing in this book, in the wilderness, look at Numbers chapter 3. So flip over to the next chapter. Let's find out more about this particular tribe, these particular people. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And they had no children, so Eliezer and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. And notice verse 5 here. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi here. This is significant. And set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. And they shall keep a guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. As we read that, I'm not sure we can always appreciate the details of religious ritual. But if, if we were to talk to anthropologists who study ancient cultures for a living, what we would find is a culture's rituals matter. How they see themselves in relationship to God. How they see themselves in relationship to sin. How they, how they celebrate important things as a culture. These things matter. And what God is telling us, what God is showing us, is he is present in, even in these rituals. And notice what the Levites do. The, notice what these priests do. They kind of form themselves in the middle. They guard the tent and the people. They look after this holy tent of meeting. They, they provide a, a protective layer, a, a buffer, and they're, they're ministering, and they're constantly ministering to the people, but inside the tent, and the people inside the tent, and, and they're bringing those things together, these priests in the middle. Who are they? The next several chapters are going to talk about Levi quite a bit, begin to detail how the priests will work. How do you deal with someone that's unclean before God? The Levites will play a role in that. How will confession work? How will restitution work? And the Levites have a, have a pretty all-inclusive job description. Their mission, the Levites and the priests, are to bring people to God. And in ways we could say it's to bring God to the people. They deal with confession and sacrifices, reconciliation. They are leading others in worship. I love the way Eugene Peterson says it. He says, worship is the heart of the life of God's people and the Levites were responsible for making sure it stayed that way. At the heart of God and his people, it's meant to be worship. The Levites have that as their job description. So they're going to minister between a holy God and unholy people. You know what that tells us? It tells us that humans, we as humans, are not okay. We need some sort of mediator to go in between. And the Levites and the priests exercised in that role. 
It's not enough for us to say, oh, I think I'm a pretty good person. We need some sort of mediator between us and God. I was thinking about this, just trying to grasp this in my heart. If I were to hurt you deeply, if I were to commit some horrible sin against you or betray you, and a week later you were to see me, and I were to walk up, with, walk up to you with all confidence and say, you know what? You and I are good. Because I've forgiven myself of doing that wrong against you. I've thought a lot about it this week and I've just chosen to forgive myself. So I'm glad we're okay now. You would rightfully know we're not okay. This is not all right. You can't just say the words like we're all right and restitution be done. You would be right to question how I could even forgive myself and, and, and that, in my mind, repair a relationship. Friends, it's the same way that we can't just up and tell God we're okay. We've sinned against him. And for us to just say, you know what? I think I've done my best. I think I've tried to be okay. And I I think I'm okay with God. That's not the path that God shows us. We need someone to come in between us, a, a mediator to take a holy God and sinful humans. And see, here's the good news of numbers. And here's the good news of scripture. And here's the good news of all that we've sung about today is that God takes the initiative to make us right with him. So God doesn't just leave this distance and say, you figure out how to get right on, on, on terms with me. But God in his love moves toward us. He's not okay with that distance. He moves toward us in love and in compassion. He provides the means for us to come to him, to be reconciled to him. No, it's not acceptable for us to just say, yeah, I think God and I are okay. But God also doesn't say, you just stay away from me and stay out of my presence. No, God comes looking for us. As a matter of fact, as you read further into Numbers, you come to a passage in Numbers chapter 6, and I think it's one of the, probably the most famous verses in Numbers are in Numbers chapter 6. It's a Hebrew blessing. It's a Christian blessing. But it's a blessing because God has met and reconciled people. So listen to Numbers chapter 6 and verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, you speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. And God says, I will bless them. God's people are blessed by God, and that doesn't come cheaply. That comes because there's a mediator that brings God and his people together. When I read number six, it's not a generic blessing. I remember growing up getting, I think I was either middle school or high school, getting a, a card from, a Christmas card from someone in it's funny, the, the dumb things you remember, but I remember what the card said. So it said, may the warm winds of heaven blow gently on your house and may the great spirit bless all who enter there. 
Which sounds nice, I guess. I'm just not sure what that means. Warm winds blowing gently, it sounds very poetic. But as I read number six, what you don't have here is a generic blessing. May the great spirit do good things for lots of people. You have a covenant name of God. You have the Lord. May he bless you. You're his people. May he bless you. May he keep you. May he protect you. May he smile upon your life. May he grant you peace. What we have there is no generic religious blessing. What we have is a true blessing. A blessing for Moses that means later on in chapter 7, he's actually able to enter into the tent of meeting and hear God speak. Number 7, verse 89 says, And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony. See, when we've been blessed by the Lord, Numbers chapter 7 is a, is a chapter where God's people give to him, not to bribe and pay him off for his blessing. God's already given them his blessing. This isn't a, a payoff to keep the gods happy. This is an offering to the Lord because of the blessings he has given to us. You read in Numbers 8 and Numbers 9 where the Levites are cleansed and prepared to celebrate the Passover, this grand deliverance of celebration. So why would numbers go to such great detail for us to understand the ancient customs of a people? Why start off numbers like that? There's lots of stories that we'll get to over the weeks to come. My guess is that ancient military maneuvers and reports of migration Although that may interest some of you, my guess is, you know, we're just not riveted by that. My, my guess is that unless you're an engineer and likey how orderly some of these things are and how symmetrical things are, my guess is some of these verses don't appeal. But, but, but can we take a moment and see the picture, all right? So what we've said so far is we have the people of God and we have a, a tent of meeting and we have priests in the middle, What we're told in the New Testament is that the Old Testament is a shadow and it it points forward to the substance. So all this is a shadow, it's a picture. So we see the people of God in this wilderness. And friends, that's us. We've been called the people of God. We've been chosen by him. He has saved us from our own bondage of sin. God has marked us off, not by by our genealogy, but by how we relate to Jesus Christ. He's marked us off and he said, you are my people and I'm your God. And God cares about his people, all of them. From the most intelligent to the least intelligent, from the most well-off to the least well-off, to the 
to the most important person in this room, earthly speaking, to the, to the person who you could move and no one would ever miss you. Yeah, God cares. God cares about his people. God is still calling his people just like he did then. God is still calling us to a life of repentance and faith and obedience. And by the way, just as he did back then, God works not just in the lives of individual persons, but God works through a people. That's why I think it matters that you belong to a church, a group of people, whether it's this body of Christ or another manifestation of the body of Christ. God works in the life of his people, not just individually. Will will God speak to you in your quiet time while you're alone? Sure he can. But there are things that you will miss apart from being together with God's people and being committed to God's people. Yeah, the Old Testament, I mean, number starts with the people of God. And I want to say we are the people of God, whatever wilderness we may be in. Numbers talks about a tent. It was a shadow. We have something far greater. There's a reason why we don't all kind of camp around a literal tent. We don't have a literal camp. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God, God's presence is actually in us and among us as his people. The Holy Spirit brings God before us in revelation and in promises and in holiness. He shows us who God is and he shows us what God demands and he shows us that God says that he will watch over us. God keeps his promises. He sent the Holy Spirit to live in us, to guide us, to help us find our way. And we don't have a tent. We have something far deeper. That's the Holy Spirit that will walk us, even in the wilderness, will walk us all the way home. In the book of Numbers, the Levites and the priests play such an important role, but we've already sung this morning about our great high priest before the throne of God above. We don't have someone just attached to a particular family, the Levites. We have a great high priest. Jesus has become our, our tabernacle, our dwelling place. He lived among us. He fulfilled the Passover. He was the sin offering, but he's also the priest who's offering the sin offering. Scripture says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our priest. When did all this happen? It happened through his work on the cross so that you and I might be the people of God. So wherever we go in the wilderness, wherever we go where there's complications and uncertainty, what we do know is that the Holy Spirit is inside of us, and we are called by his name, and we have a great high priest that we can call out to and And we are part of a people who are told to make a name for God. How do we walk with God in the wilderness? How do we walk with God in a place that is neglected or abandoned, a bewildering situation? Well, this is the way we walk forward. This is the way we move forward. Before numbers will tell us anything else, it says, just know this. God Almighty is in your midst. You walk forward with him. And he's done the work of the priest offering the sacrifice of his perfect life, sacrificial death for our sins. It's because of that church family. We can even gather around the Lord's table today like we will. And we call it communion because it's communion with with each other, but it's also communion with the Lord. 
we're made right because of what he's done. I'm going to ask the deacons to begin to prepare and they're going to bring uh, bread and juice. This time, I mean, we could certainly let our minds wander and think about the next week of things to do or we could take it and, and look at our hearts and go, there's sin in my life that I need to confess and if I confess, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. We can take this time to celebrate the assurance we have that Jesus Christ is ours. We can remind ourselves again, nourish ourselves with the bread and with the juice that our God's faithful.